Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our weekly political roundup with former Toronto Star journalist Richard Brennan. Uh, now that Keenan Loomis has announced his reassignment from the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, is he ready to run for mayor? What will Fred Eisenberger do? Well, we'll get into the speculation about municipal politics and hearts break as we remember the legendary singer Meatloaf, who passed away last night at age 74. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I always look forward to uh, our next segment here. It's kind of a rundown of uh, what happened. A very busy week in politics, both federally and uh, here in the province of Ontario. I, I guess the, the big story, of course, in Ontario uh, was the announcement yesterday by the Premier that uh, they're going to start the reopening, a kind of a phased-in approach. And, uh, well, a lot of folks uh, were concerned about this. Uh, some of the experts are telling us it's not the right time to do this. Others are saying, for God's sakes, it's been too long now. Can we just reopen the doors already? So uh, any government, of course, is going to get caught in a hard place. And a lot of the criticism directed at the Premier over the last little while has been about closing businesses down. And he addressed that yesterday and says he hates to do it, but it's necessary. I'm confident about the economy. I'm feeling very confident we're going to cautiously uh, open up and uh, we're going to get back to normal as soon as we possibly can. Uh, I, I can tell the business owners, uh, I, I, I can't stand closing them down. Uh, but health, health is a priority. And I follow uh, directions and advice from our health team. And that's, that's what uh, was able to, to get us uh, through the last uh, few weeks. Well, there he goes. So he does say he follows the directions from his health team. Uh, some of the members of the health team are not so sure about that. Let's uh, open a conversation with that with our good friend uh, Richard Brennan, a former journalist with the Toronto Star, uh, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years. Uh, Badger, great to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well. I'm just fine, Bill. Uh, two, of, two of my grandsons have tested positive. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, Everybody fine, though? Oh yeah, they're they're uh, they're four and and seventeen months. So yeah, and they they seem to have weathered it fairly well so far. So well, you know, Doctor Bonnie Henry out in BC said at some point maybe everybody is going to at least get, test positive or get this. It's a matter of how it's going to impact. I guess it's it's still frightening. Uh, it but is. We wish the best for them though. Uh, that they're going to be just fine going forward on that. And I guess they're doing the isolation bit and everything else. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Good. Uh, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about yesterday. And and you and I have talked about this in the past. When you're in a crisis situation, and the pandemic is a crisis situation, uh, a lot of the time governments are damned if they do, damned if they don't. You know, no matter who you are, whether you're Doug Ford or Justin Trudeau or any other political leader at this stage. Uh, but the consistent uh, beef about what Ford is doing here, and we already got it yesterday afternoon, mere hours after he announced uh, the reopening plan. Uh, is the, some of the medical experts are weighing in and said, no, it's not time yet. Our numbers are still going up. Hospitalizations are still going up. Uh, what, what's your read? Was and, and, of course, the other side of that is, well, this was more political than it was based on medical evidence. What, what was your read on what you saw yesterday? It, it's, I saw a premier who was desperate to try and get you know, the wheels back on the, on the wagon here. He, he needs to do something. And you know, regardless of, I guess, whether it's right or wrong, he doesn't want to see the economy stay stagnant any longer or any, any more than it has to be. So he's introducing this, this three-stage process. Whether it's too early, some would certainly, you know, it certainly seems, you know, just to the ordinary eye that it seems to be. But I don't know if he has any other choice, Bill. I really don't. He has to do something, and he's going to stage it. And he, and he said 
if if things don't seem to work, he said, you know, I'll bring the hammer down again. But we can't continually keep stores locked out or, you know, or restaurants locked, gyms locked, whatever it might be. It's just not possible. We, we can't afford to do it. Simply that. This is all done, of course, under the, you know, the, the, the knowledge that, you know, there is an election, I guess, a little more than four and a half months from now uh, in early June. And, uh, you know, you look at some of the popularity polls and he's not doing well. As, as you might expect, there are too many political leaders that are doing well, as a matter of fact, because of what's going on with the pandemic. But does he run the risk, even by announcing this, that if it doesn't go well, he's going to wear this? Oh, he knows it. He's wearing it already, Bill. And he knows it. I mean, you, the latest latest Angus Reid poll, you know, had the, uh, had the NDP leading him in Ontario. So he knows that it's, it's time to do something what that something is, whether it's right or wrong. But if I was a politician, I, I'm, I'm afraid that I'd probably be doing the same thing, knowing that that, that, you know, that train's coming down the track and that, that's a June election. And we just can't have, you know, have closures all the time. It's, it's and, a and, decision, Bill, you know, quite yeah. frankly, he can say, he can say that, you know, you know, people can complain, well, you know, he's not listening to the medical people, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it really is a political decision. Because there are political consequences. And yes, we understand there are public health consequences to this as well. Uh, but, you know, there seems to be a, a mood shift these, and I'm talking North America-wide, not just here in Ontario, to say, look, we just have to learn to live with this and manage it. And, and uh, you know, there's probably some merit to that. Uh, except that those medical experts that we just talked about, including some of the people on the science table here in Ontario, are saying, yeah, we're okay with that, but you got to get these numbers down first. Uh, you know, we can't have increasing hospitalizations and say we're managing it. Those numbers have to be down, uh, and they're not there yet. Uh, but you're right. If he just says, okay, we're going to keep things closed, uh, that's going to cause even more resentment, I would think. And and let's let's bring those polls into a, into the conversation. I know there was a, a a poll, the Abacus poll that was out earlier that said that the Ford government actually had a pretty comfortable lead over the uh, the other two parties. That was early in the week. And then uh, out comes the poll yesterday from Angus Reid that basically said, as you mentioned, the NDP are three points ahead of them, uh, the Conservatives. And and I know, I know, you know, I, I still remember the old John Diefenbaker quote about, you know, what good, polls are only good for one thing and that so dogs can relieve themselves. But they are an indicator and they are a, a, a snapshot in time. And I think the poll you saw from Angus Reid that's got the, the NDP ahead right now it probably is, is, is really a reflection of the fact that people in this province are just tired. And, and when you're angry and tired and frustrated, you want to blame somebody. And invariably, it's the people that are governing you. Well, hey, Bill, everybody's fed up. You know, I, a friend of mine just, you know, we went for a walk yesterday and he said, you know, I, I just had it. He said, I just know how much more of this I can take. He said, I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything, you know, and I can't see people. And and that and that's just reverberated right across the, the province. People are just tired of it. But the fact remains, people are dying. So you have to weigh, you have to weigh those consequences. I mean, it was like 70 some odd yesterday uh, deaths. Like, like that's just incredible. So we have that to think about it. We have the hospital beds to think about, and we have politics to think about. So there's a mixture there. And when you're the premier, uh, I'm I'm afraid that you're going to try and try and balance them all with the, with the weights a little more heavy on the political side. 
Talk to me about the plan, though. And and uh, one of the first questions, John, when they finally shifted over to the Q&A yesterday was uh, well, from one of your former colleagues, Rob Ferguson from the Star, uh, that basically said, you know, the, you've talked about reopenings, but what's the plan? What, how are you planning to get the numbers down? Hospitalizations are still up. Uh, and you'd like to think that, okay, you know, and he talked about when you'd like to enter, you know, enter into phase two, et cetera. But that's only going to happen, he said, if those numbers go down. They didn't really announce how they wanted to do this. I mean, you know, he did say, yeah, we all get, need to get vaccinated. Well, we all know that. And there's got to be more to it. There's got to be some sort of a strategy here. And I'm, I'm, I, I share a certain amount of sympathy that he was just talking about here. I don't know what options they have open to them right now. People are going to say, you know, what are we going to do? You're just going to keep the doors locked or you're only going to let 500 people into a Leaf game and that's actually going to knock this virus down? I'm skeptical. I think a lot of people are. Bill, if you've seen a plan or a strategy, I'd like to see it. Because I don't think there's been one throughout this entire pandemic. It's just from pillar to post. That's all it's been right from the very beginning. Uh, A plan, the whole plan has been get vaccinated. Well, that's great. We all know that that works, or most of us do anyway. But there has to be more than that. It has to be, you know, it has to be a plan to create more beds, uh, ICU beds during, you know, a pandemic. There has to be a, a plan to deal with the problems associated with a pandemic. And I just don't see it. I don't think a lot of people just don't see it. And I think that's a frustration that people just don't know where the ship's headed. And right now, it just seems to be it seems to be listing. Well, you know, if you learn from history, and I think we're supposed to learn from history, if you look back on, on the first wave and second wave, I guess, of the pandemic, uh, that was pre-vaccination too. I mean, we didn't even have that as an as an option at that stage, but the numbers went down considerably, as you remember, that first year in, into July and August. But it was because the the experts told us because it got warm out. Uh, and so yeah. we were outside and we were distancing ourselves because we were outside, you know, on the golf course or wherever we were. Uh, when we're indoors like this, it seems to be a problem. But uh, is, is he using a, a sledgehammer to, to kill a flea here? I mean, you know, do we shut everything down or do we try to identify the places where it looks like there could be some spread? You know, for instance, a Leaf or a Raptors game, that's one thing. I mean, why restaurants are only half capacity right now? Uh, I still would like to see a study that indicates that being in a restaurant is actually a, a spreader. Uh, I don't know that those numbers exist. I don't know that that exists, but it just seems as if, well, let's let's make sure that everybody is 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 going to pay a price for this, as opposed to just being strategic. And I don't know how politically smart that is either. Bill, I I, I stand to be corrected, but talk about the hammer being brought down. Well, it certainly was in Quebec. Yep. The curfew, the whole works. I mean, you don't go much further than that. And I don't see their numbers going down at all. So no. is, is, is that the solution? It, it doesn't seem to me, from my uh, uh, point of view, that it really has helped that much. It depends. I, I, it's, it's not just what you do. It's when you do it. And I know the example a lot of people hold up is, is the way should have, the way things should have gone was in Spain. Uh, where they did come up with some pretty pretty high stuff. They, by the way, have one of the highest uh, vaccination rates in all of Europe. But, uh, I mean, they basically shut everything down. And so you weren't even allowed out of the house. Remember in Australia, you did that, too. You know, if you were caught walking your dog after 10 o'clock at night, you got a ticket. Uh, and, and it worked for them. It, it, it controlled it. It flattened the curve, is the phrase we were using at the time. Uh, the accusation here in Ontario, and frankly, I think it happened in Quebec as well, is the government's, you know, with political thoughts in mind, 
because both provinces are going to have an election this year. Uh, they, they employ half measures and hope that this is going to do it. I mean, that's the takeaway I got from the, the comments from the premier and the minister of health yesterday is that we're hoping this is going to get better. Well, you can't hope this thing away. You've got to have a plan. Bill, but he's being pulled. In, the premier is being pulled in many directions. He's being pulled by business to open things back up again. He's being pulled by the, uh, uh, the medical field to, you know, bring in greater or more controls, more and 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 then you know he's and then he's got the politics of it all for himself. So that, you know it's a three-way struggle, and he. I don't think he knows what to do, quite frankly. I, I think it's, I think the guy, the guy is just scrambling. I, I really do. And, you know, a lot of us through no fault of his own, but the point is that he's the premier, the buck stops with him and he better come up with something soon. And I think more than just this three-phased approach, if he wants to convince people that he's really, you know, got his hand on the tiller. One of the comments that I thought was was very revealing uh, was when he, again, was trying to explain away the, some of the questions, you know, about where's the plan, et cetera, and how's this actually going to work. Uh, he reverted back to uh, one of the oldest political game, uh, tricks in the in the bag, and that was to blame the previous government. You know, that the, the, the Wynn government left the, the healthcare system in shambles here, yada, yada, yada. Uh, you expect that maybe in the first couple of months of a, of a new mandate, but I mean, in, into the fourth year of it right now, that sounds to me as if he's well aware of some of these polling numbers that we've talked about right now. Uh, and he's, he's grasping at straws to try to, to I guess, solidify his base because the, the, clearly the pandemic strategy is not working. So he's going to go back to the old thing. They're the bad guys and we're the good guys. And I, I don't know if that's going to fly now. No, well, that Bill, that works for about the first three months or first three to six months in a mandate. Well, you know, we were we were handed a bad mess here when we took over. Blah blah. We've all we've all heard that repeated time and time again, and that's okay. People people will cut you some slack for a while. Sure, but I'm sorry, but that doesn't last any longer. You know, you're you're the you're the government. You can't blame somebody else now. You 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 wanted to be the government. You wanted to take you know take the reins. Well, you got them. So. It's all the responsibilities thereof, you know, that come with the job. And, and people will look at, look at, that's white noise. No more than just that, to blame the previous government. Sure, they may be, previous governments are, you know, whatever stripe they were, are blamed for this and that. But nobody cares. They want to know what you're going to do and where we're going. I want to. I want to. Very. I guess kind of morph into a federal thing, but I, I probably applies to people here too. Uh, traveling and, of course, going back and forth across the border. Uh, the the fact that people vaccination uh, and have even had a negative test are still being tested at airports uh, when they want to travel, and uh, it's an awfully frustrating situation. I mean, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago about how we're just all sick and tired of this. This is one of the contributing factors. It's it's redundant. The medical experts have said that this is overkill. You don't need to be doing that. Uh, when are they guys get, these guys going to understand that there are some things they can do to try to alleviate a little bit of this frustration? And this is probably as good as a, a place as any to start. It, uh, it, it's just a mess. Well, there's no other way. A hot mess. This whole business of travel. You know, you, you've got it. You've got it. You know, a, a PCR test before you travel somewhere. Uh, you can be fully vaccinated. Let's let's take myself. Okay, fully. You know, three three vaccinations. You know, the, with the booster. And yep. if I travel somewhere, I've got to get a PCR test. 
And, and then that's just to get on the plane. And then wherever I go, I've got to get a test down there, a test down there as well. And it costs you money, okay, to come back home. And then they can still uh, randomly pick you to have another test. And here I am, I've done everything they've asked to do, right? You know, the boosters are wearing my mask. I'm doing everything necessary. And I'm still getting hassled. Like that to me doesn't make a lick of sense. Well, it's it's one of these common sense things that the government should actually look at here. And, and there's a lot of infighting going on with the premiers and the federal government again now, too. And I guess that's a reflection on what's going on. Uh, it's it's been a rather tumultuous week, and uh, and well, here's hoping that uh, that we can move on to better days ahead. As always, uh, Badger, thank you so much for the time. It's always great to get your perspective. Uh, good luck with the grandkids. I, I'm sure they're going to be fine, but it's still a very disconcerting situation when it uh, hits your family, isn't it? Oh, it is, Bill. I'll let you know how things work out. Please do. Okay. Thanks again. Take care. Bye bye. Richard Brenham, former journalist with the Toronto Star, with his weekly roundup on the provincial politics and a little jab into the federal scene as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about municipal elections. And uh, there was some news on that front uh, earlier this week in Hamilton anyway, when a high-profile individual uh, announced that he was going to seek the mayoral job. Now, the election is not until October. we got a ways to go on this. Uh, but... Uh, on the program earlier this week, I spoke with uh, Keenan Loomis, who is the uh, outgoing president now and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. He has resigned that post, and he's going to take a run at the mayor's office. And uh, Keenan Loomis told us that, well, he thought this is the perfect time to run. I need new challenges. And uh, obviously, uh, getting through COVID, getting the, the organization and, and business community through COVID, hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, um, you know, it, it's it's time to move on. And, and this, as you said, happens to be a year of election here municipally. And uh, so, you know, it, it's it's the perfect time to be throwing my hat in the ring. Well, uh, let's talk about the implications of uh, said move. And uh, to do that, please to welcome back to the program uh, John Best, who is the publisher, of course, of the Bay Observer that keeps an eye on what's happening on municipal politics. Uh, John, always a pleasure. Hope you're doing well. Great to be with you, Bill. Uh, were you surprised by this announcement? I've been, there had been rumors going on for quite some time that there was going to be uh, a high-profile candidate that was uh, going to take a run at the, at the job right now. Uh, was, was this on your radar? Um, yes, I, I had heard that uh, that there was uh, some discussion about Keenan running. So, so no, I, I can't say I was particularly surprised. I, you know, it had, there had been a number of names thrown around, as you well know, but uh, his was certainly one of them. Let's let's talk about the implications. We should, by the way, mention he is not officially registered for the job. He can't even do that yet. Uh, there was I imagine a time... he'll find his way to that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a couple of elections ago, I mean, you, we had, I thought it was just an insane situation. A couple of people who wanted the mayor's job, it was like a year before the election that they registered, uh, which essentially means that's when the campaign started. They, they've got until March or something. Is it before they can even register now? I'm not sure about the registration piece, but I know that I think it's May now before you can oh, start okay. raising money and spending money. Whether which makes a lot more sense. register earlier or not, I'm not sure. Given the situation that we've seen here in the city, uh, John, uh, over the last number of years, really, I guess, since this term of council was sworn in, uh, are you surprised that there's going to be uh, somebody taking a run at uh, not just the mayor, but possibly, I would think, some other incumbents uh, could meet some some pretty stiff challenges, too? No, it's uh, it's been pretty obvious for, I don't know, a year or maybe more. Uh, you see all the social media activity. You see the 
the uh, establishment of the I elect uh, group, uh, it was it was pretty obvious that uh, uh, they were going to try to um, go after the incumbents, go after the old guard. So, yeah, you know, this this election is certainly going to be a showdown between those forces. Uh, no question about it. We we know we're going to get substantial change on council because we've already got three resignations. Uh, one announced uh, with Brenda Johnson uh, last week, and then of course Chad Collins has moved on to already to uh, federal politics, and Sam Marula announced his retirement uh, months ago. So, you know, you're you're going to get three new faces without necessarily uh, I elect or anybody else being a factor. Do you get the sense that there may actually be more people that have decided as incumbents, uh, veteran incumbents? Uh, that may just uh, step aside and say enough is enough here. Um, I'm not sure. I, uh, you know, we we constantly hear, you know, you hear people say, well, maybe Lloyd's not going to run again, and uh, you know, I heard uh, uh, Arlene Vanderbeek's name mentioned as possibly not running again. But depending on where they are, um, even if they didn't run again, they're likely to be replaced in places like Ancaster and Dundas. They're likely to be replaced by somebody who is going to be philosophically a lot like them because that's the way those communities operate. But there could be new faces. I mean, you know, oh, you absolutely. Mentioned- there, there, there could be, you know what it's like when there's an open race on, in any ward, you, you get, you know, dozens uh, of people uh, lining up to run. And that can be, that can be an issue as well because you get so many people running that somebody wins with a couple of thousand votes or maybe even less than that. But, uh, you know, it's early days, and, um, you know, uh, certainly uh, in terms of the mayoralty race, uh, we, we have King and Loomis announcing, which is the, the proper strategy for someone who's trying to take down uh, an incumbent. And the same strategy for the incumbent is to wait uh, for as long as, you know, even Labor Day or, or later to announce. That's sort of the front runner strategy. We'll see who else, if anybody. My guess is there's going to be a number of people running for mayor this year. Well, they usually are. I mean, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to name some of the ones that have run on a consistent basis over last elections because they invariably get labeled into the fringe category, you know, because they'll get a a couple of thousand or a couple of hundred votes, I guess. A couple of hundred is more like it. Yeah, and we've seen that, you know, from time to time. The same people's names pop up and pop up. But what you want here, I guess, what we're looking for is who are the serious contenders? And uh, and as you say, Keenan Loomis's name has been thrown out there for some time. There's some talk about uh, a former mayor, a former MP, uh, who may be taking another run at this. I asked Bob Bertine about that the other day, and he said he'd probably uh, make up some sort of a, a, an announcement. Of, he said by early February, uh, it seemed to be the time frame he's looking at. Is he a serious contender? As I know the name's out there, and it's always interesting when you, when people start throwing that name out there. But well, he's he's always been kind of under underrated and has never lost an election. So you know, uh, be be interesting. I don't think he. You know, I know that that February date gets tossed around, but I think if you're as well known as Bob Bertini is, uh, you you can kind of take the same strategy as an incumbent. You don't necessarily have to jump out there. Uh, months and months ahead. He's, he's certainly considering it. There's no question about that. And uh, that would make for a very interesting race, especially if um, if uh, Fred Eisenberger decides to run for mayor again. I saw him on council this week, uh, the day that Keenan announced, and he seemed to be 
a little bit out of sorts with a couple of counselors who I'm pretty sure will be supporting Keenan. And I wondered if, you know, it was just, uh, it's not just that, but I mean, he's been the butt of um, a lot of this dialect, these uh, satirical cartoons that they're constantly putting out. And, um, you know, it's kind of ironic in a sense because Keenan is obviously a major supporter of LRT, but so is Fred. So, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure where this anti-Fred thing comes from, particularly in the dialect uh, piece. Uh, I don't understand. It seems to me that uh, he's, uh, you know, that he would appeal to that group a little more based on his LRT stance. And he's, he's been supportive of a, a number of other progressive things in the community. Well, part of the... I'm not I campaigning for Fred, but I'm just looking at it from yeah. a standpoint of fairness to... You know, it's kind of interesting. I, I, but, but to your point, I think what the, the fuel for for a lot of the discontent there uh, is is well, what they are accusing uh, the the mayor of is is inaction on key issues like LGBTQ issues and 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 of course the homelessness issue. You know, that's that's being laid at his doorstep. Uh, let's face it; I mean, he's he's been the subject of actually a protest on his front lawn uh, not too long ago, which is rather disconcerting for for family members and everybody else. So it's it's not just hey we don't agree with this guy necessarily it, uh, the the opposition to to the incumbent in this situation uh, is uh, is 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 getting pretty heated. Yeah, uh, there, there's a lot of anger out there. I I don't know how widespread it is. Uh, I was uh, telling uh, somebody that was filling in for you last week that uh, a few years ago when I was when I was consulting, I I got involved in a poll, uh, a municipal election poll. And, and the, the essence of it was, uh, what kind of a job do you think council is doing? And, and you kind of got results that were very similar to what I elect got, which is, you know, a lot of negativity and, and so on. Then people were asked, what about your own counselor, your own ward counselor? Well, and it was almost the reverse. It was, so it was sort of like, we hate council, but we like our guy or our woman. And I'm not sure that that's changed uh, a whole lot since, since then. Well, Certainly, uh, in uh, in October, we'll find out how much the the desire for change is. But you know, longevity, uh, yes. Uh, you know, time for a new face. Uh, I get all that. But I think one of the things people forget, and I, I'm thinking of a campaign that I was involved in in Ward Three. Uh, God knows how long ago. When somebody's been in office for a long time as a counselor, they they solve a lot of problems. They do a lot of stuff. They climb up a lot of trees and get cats down. They solve garbage problems. And so if you've been in for, you know, two or three terms, four terms, over the period of that time, you've touched a lot of people in that ward, directly or indirectly. Somebody will say, well, you know, my counselor, even if it isn't them directly, you know, a neighbor will say, well, I had a garbage problem. The counselor fixed it. And that works for not only that individual, but everybody that lives around that individual. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not all about uh, you've been here so long and you've done nothing. Uh, a lot of the, the work that a counselor does is, is not the stuff you see around the horseshoe. It's, it's what people really expect them to do, which is solve a lot of the, these neighborhood problems. So, you know, look after the basics, garbage, policing, uh, snow plowing, uh, all of that kind of stuff. That's that's what uh, most voters are really focused on. 
Which I guess uh, underscores uh, the statistic that invariably is going to come out again. And it does every time there's a municipal election. What's what's the number, John? Something like eighty nine or ninety percent of incumbents get reelected in municipal elections. Yeah, it's a big number. Uh, I I'm just trying to think. Uh, in the last election, we had one incumbent defeated, um, but I, I I think in Hamilton it would be more than ninety percent. It is so rare for an incumbent to be defeated now. That's counselors. Uh, we've had all kinds of turnover and defeats with mayors. Uh, in fact, the mayority is probably the most vulnerable of all the council positions. But these these local counselors, uh, you know, once they're in, um, they really do have an advantage because they've had four years to to build up relationships, uh, all the little community groups that they appear at, town halls, all that kind of stuff, plus just the day-to-day problem-solving. So, yeah, it's, uh, we'll see if, if there's going to be a significant change. Uh, I look at I-Elect. Um, they, they had their survey out there for two months, three months, I'm sorry. They got something like 2,000 responses, uh, which is, you know, that's not bad, really. Um, but uh, it's all mostly half, more than half of it's Ward 1, 2, and 3. You go into the other wards and, you know, it's 70, 80, 90 people participated so it's a phenomenon but it's a lower city phenomenon at this point do you expect that you we, we talked about former mayor and, and, and member of parliament bob Bertina, who's mulling something over uh, another name that comes up of course is andrea horvath the leader of the uh, the ndp uh, and of course representative with hamilton center she's been in provincial politics for a long long time right now uh, it's it's not unusual, but rare for somebody to step down to another level. I mean, you know, another NDP or Dave Christofferson did that some years ago, uh, yep. left his, his his provincial seat and, t- and took a run at the mayor uh, job. He he was not successful, of course. That was the year that Larry Deany got elected. Uh, but it's uh, it's it's always an interesting and I guess a very difficult decision for people like that to make. Uh, but it's got to be tempting, I would think, you know, to to be able to to run and be successful in a mayoral run like that. I guess a lot of what uh, might happen with Andrea Horvath is going to depend on what happens in the provincial election in June, though. Yeah, and you know, with the with the provincial election, I think I think most people would say uh, that the provincial Liberal Party is not a seven seat party in the normal scheme of things. So it's almost inevitable that they will gain some seats in this election. And and you know just from a philosophical standpoint, you'd have to say that any seats they gain or most of the seats they gain are going to come at the expense of the NDP. She's been through I don't know how many elections now, but she's been the leader of the party for a long time. And you know, I guess the the, the issue is 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 she going to be better off after the next provincial election and. You know, I think the odds are that it's not going to be as good as it is now. And so does that, you know, does that trigger her perhaps looking at changing uh, roles? I don't know. But with with Keenan running, who's obviously a progressive, and, and with her running, uh, you're really kind of splitting votes from the same constituency. So I'm sure that would be a consideration as well. Well, let me ask you, i got a minute left here, and I guess one of the key questions uh, and you mentioned uh, LRT, for instance, and, and, you know, if in fact I, Fred Eisenberger decides to shape the election and Keenan, what's the issue in this election? Uh, it's not going to be LRT. Uh, is there a burning issue uh, that's going to motivate somebody to get on there and said, I need to be the champion for that? Well, 
change. I mean, is there ever an election where change wasn't one of the big issues? Sure. Um, I, you know, and I think that's really what it comes down to, Bill. Uh, how, you know, there, uh, again, there's, uh, the, there's these quote-unquote scandals that are being listed, but, uh, you know, I, I don't like the way council handled the, certainly the sewer gate situation, but, you know, they, they were, and, and I do believe they were acting on, uh, you know, legal advice. And I, I think this council generally is a little too slavish when it comes to legal advice. Uh, I always say lawyers give advice. They don't give orders. But uh, nobody hears me when I say that. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, and, and every member of this council, in, including the, the progressive ones, went along initially with that gag order. Yeah. Yeah, they so did. How do you blame some and not the the entire group? Um, you know, uh, I I just think that uh, we may not see the kind of sea change. Other than, as I said, we've got three open wards, and that's unusual in this city. So we so there is going to be change. There, there's no question it's going to be change. The question is. Uh, you know, is it, are we going to get new faces that are a lot like the old faces, or are we really going to get somebody that's got a different philosophical point of view? And I, I'm not sure outside of the lower three or four words that that's, that's obvious at this point. Exactly. Well, lots of time for speculation on this. Uh, John, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again. I'm sure there's going to be a few wrinkles down the road on this. Yeah, I'll have the audio hook up next time, Bill. <laughs> okay. John <laughs> Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer, with uh, what's happening on the municipal election scene. And that's important as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, I'm talking about what's going on over in the, in the UK. Uh, it's uh, rather tumultuous. Uh, they've got their hands full with the pandemic, like everyone else in the world does. And Boris Johnson, who tested positive, you may remember, was actually hospitalized uh, in one of the early stages of the pandemic uh, with COVID. Well, Boris Johnson's office has now apologized to the royal family for a lockdown breaching staff party uh, that Boris Johnson attended, of course, at uh, number 10 Downing Street on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral. This is really just the latest in a string of rule-breaking social events that are threatening to topple the British Prime Minister. He's taken a lot of heat for this. Matter of fact, at a political conference just uh, the other day, uh, UK opposition uh, leader, that's the uh, Labour Party leader, Keir Starmer, says that Boris Johnson should no longer be in office following the latest scandals. Now, the moral authority matters in relation to enforcing the COVID rules, but we've got other massive challenges facing this country, massive challenges. We've got a prime minister who is absent, you know, he's literally in hiding at the moment um, and unable to lead. And so um, that's why I've concluded that um, he's got to go. Well, I'm not so sure he's going to, but uh, the heat is certainly on uh, Boris Johnson right now. Uh, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about uh, the, some of the, the updates with what's happening with uh, COVID over there, too. Uh, to that end, so pleased to welcome back to the program Sam Fazelli. Sam is the Director of Research with the Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Sam, hope you're doing well. I know that uh, you had a brush with the COVID yourself a few weeks ago. Everything is okay now? Oh, yes, Bill. Thank you for having me on. And if it's not too late or disallowed, Happy New Year. And um, to you, too. Yes, that, that, that's long gone. It took it. I mean, I was back on my bicycle running around uh, the, the, the roads uh, two weeks after my first test positive. So it oh, wasn't that good. bad for me. Good to Luckily. hear. And of course, because of the vaccination. Uh, and it looks like uh, the UK is starting to, to loosen things up just a little bit. What's, what's the feedback on there, Sam? Yeah, obviously people love it because everybody is fed up with these kind of rules in terms of certainly self-isolation 
And, you know, you can only do so much work from home because you, you miss all the social aspects of, uh, of, of work and getting to work and getting back. So a lot of that is, is going to be uh, very much welcome. Getting rid of masks, I've never understood. I think it's a, it's a very good idea to, to keep wearing masks. And let's not forget, they're still dealing with something in the region of 100,000 official numbers of cases. How many people are infected is probably two or three times that magnitude on a daily basis. So it's not like the virus is gone. Well, that's that's the heat that uh, that some of the leaders on, on this side of the pond are taking right now. Is is they're saying it's time to start treating this as just part of life. In other words, we have to get on. Uh, but the medical experts are, are giving those contrary points of view over here, Sam. They're simply saying, look, the numbers don't validate that. He says, you know, we sure we'd love to get to the point where we can just pretend this is just like a flu epidemic, etc. But not while these numbers are as high as they are. And my understanding is in the UK, Sam, the numbers are still on the increase. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem, Bill, is that d- despite the fact that the only solution to stop these numbers going up is to, is, to, is to have a very hardcore circuit breaker, this virus, this variant, basically doesn't care whether it's um, interacting or infecting a vaccinated person or an unvaccinated person. Perhaps in the few weeks after a second dose or a few weeks after a uh, third dose, you certainly have a higher Uh, protection against that infection, but that will disappear. The antibody levels in your blood contract and you won't have that um, protection. And certainly Omicron is a lot less sensitive to them. So whether we like it or not, it's going to infect us at some point. The issue is the only way to stop that is by going to a COVID zero world where I actually think it's pretty much impossible because then you have other vectors, possibly animals, you have asymptomatic people. How are you going to manage it? It's, It's I think it's impossible. So at what point do you accept that and say, right, we need to try and, as you say, live with it? And to your point, I mean, there may well be an argument to be made for, like you say, a a, a, a huge, uh, as you say, circuit breaker in situations like this. I know people point to Spain, who basically shut everything down a couple of years ago when they saw this coming up, and even they're starting to relax things right now. But do you get the sense, Sam, that there's no appetite anywhere for people to say, "Yes, let's 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 really bear down on this"? We've, I think, just all had too much of this right now. And I don't think we could take it psychologically. I don't think we could take it if government said, okay, we're shutting everything down for three weeks. No, absolutely. And, and what does that do? What does it serve? I mean, you know, yes, we can see China continues to do it and, and exercise that, um, that policy, but there's a cost to it. And, you know, we just heard that apparently the U.S. administration is looking at the, the risks that, that that policy is going to I- I- incur on on the economy of the US, which involves a lot of imports from, the, from, from China. So how do you manage, especially when you have an, a variant that pretty much doesn't care whether you're vaccinated or not, clearly people are protected against it in terms of severe disease, but, but in terms of infections, not. So if this is going to continue to be your metric, then you just can't, I just don't see how you manage it. And as you rightly said, Spain did it. We did it in the UK, you did it in the US. Or in Canada, sorry, and we're back to square one. So it, it, it just we just keep can't keep playing that card. So we're moving uh, from from trying to flatten the curve to manage. 
which is a key word here. In other words, acknowledge its existence, and it's not going away anytime soon. And I know, as you mentioned, that's what Spain is doing right now. Uh, the World Health Organization has taken a lot of heat for this, for what some people are saying is, is misinformation. Uh, their association with the Chinese government, of course, back in the early days of this, I think was a, a real shot at their credibility. I know they're starting to weigh in on this now too, Sam. Are, are they still a credible source as far as you're concerned, or are people just dismissive of, of what goes on with the World Health Organization now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always viewed them as a credible source. Um, you know, their interactions with China was actually very valuable because for us to be able to, to really learn where this virus came from, and I'm not talking about labs, I'm talking about what type of zoonotic animal did it come from? How did it get to us? Did it go through other animals? How long had it been circulated? That needs research. That needs access. And unfortunately, because of some of the ways that we've, we've talked about or treated uh, China in this pandemic discussion, and the WHO was, I think, trying to maintain that. Nevertheless, uh, that's, that's history now. So I think they, they're still going about it from a health perspective only and only looking at infections, etc. There is a cost bill to any of these measures that we take. Our kids are not going to school. There is a cost. And I'm not talking about dollars changing hands. Those dollars changing hands, it, it also impacts on people being able to conduct their lives in terms of getting to work. If your train drivers are infected and can't, can't go to work. Getting to school, getting your kids at, through university, getting real face time with teachers, with, with, between students and teachers, making sure our nurses are able to conduct their work. So all of that. Is, is nothing to do with the dollar changing hand, as I said. It's all to do with being able to keep society functioning. And because can't, we just can't keep locking and then having another wave and then locking and then have another wave, it just doesn't serve a purpose. Exactly. And, and the people invariably who take the heat for that are the uh, political leaders uh, who instigate the policies. And uh, let me circle around here. Got about a minute left here. Uh, Boris Johnson, uh, not, not stranger to controversy at all. Never has been, Sam. Uh, they're looking at the situation with the party at number 10 Downing Street and simply saying, you know, the lack of respect, the fact that he's not following his own protocol uh, means you should step aside. I know the tabloids are jumping all over this right now. Does he weather this storm or is this something that's, that's going to push him? I, I, I'd be very surprised if he actually decided to step down. But is it hurting him politically? I, I think you can't argue against that view. I think you cannot argue against a situation where the leader has basically broken the rules that he set. So uh, there has to be a price for that. Is that price that he loses his premiership? Is that price uh, a, a serious damage, but we carry on? Uh, that's really for the UK people to decide. Uh, you know, but, but you can't escape the fact that these were rules that were set by him and it was broken. And, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not taking a political side here at all just stating the facts. I think everyone's pretty clear about that. Well, there's a university professor at Manchester who simply said, uh, there are more people who believe the moon landing was fake than believe what Boris Johnson says about this scandal. So I guess that pretty much talks about uh, the mindset of the uh, the folks over in the UK. Sam, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon down the road, okay? Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me back. Take care. Sam Fazelli, the director of research with Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, speaking to us from uh, the UK, from London. Uh, about what's happening over there. And uh, the Boris Johnson saga, an element to this is, is fascinating just to see 
uh, how far that scandal is going to go. Glad you're with us today. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Uh, recognizing uh, a death of uh, one of the best-selling rockeries of all time, Meatloaf passed away yesterday. Jason Nathanson has some details. His 1977 debut rock opus, Bad Out of Hell, remains one of the best-selling albums of all time. Meatloaf, born Marvin Lee a day, died Thursday night with his wife Deborah at his side. That according to a post on his Facebook page, which revealed that his daughters Pearl and Amanda and close friends were with him in the past 24 hours, but didn't reveal a cause of death. Meatloaf was also an actor with roles from Fight Club to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. sold more than 100 million albums worldwide. Meatloaf was 74. Jason Nathanson, ABC News, Hollywood. Larger-than-life figure. I, I think that's a pretty apt description of him. Uh, to talk about uh, the career, uh, so pleased to welcome back uh, Lou Molinero. Lou, of course, is an instructor at the Harris Institute for Music and uh, one of the great musicologists in this area. And it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, Lou. Thanks for joining us today. Happy 2022 to you, Bill. And to you, too. Uh, hope things are going well with you. Uh this guy was uh, just an incredible. I mean, all these terms that we've heard over the last 12 to 14 hours, rock icon, legend. I mean, they're all fitting, I think, for this guy. He, uh, he, he made a mark in, the, in this industry, didn't he? He sure did. And he wasn't really sort of one of those overnight sensations because he worked really hard for a long time before he actually achieved the success with Bat Out of Hell. He started out in the 60s uh, in California with some garage bands, then uh, became uh, part of a theatrical group, then met Jim Steinman, and they shot that album uh, around for a while before Todd Rundgren uh, came on board and pulled some strings and made it happen with Cleveland International, right? Talk to us about the collaboration with him and, and Jim Steinman. That was it was something unique. I mean, uh, we we can talk, you know, and you and I have talked about the, the relationship between artists and 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 producers and and visionaries and ideas. Uh, this looked like just the perfect match for both of them. It was definitely the perfect match because um, Meatloaf was Jim Steinman's voice, uh, and 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 his the way he delivered a lot of uh, his music was just perfect. It, it, couldn't have worked out any better uh jim steinman wrote music for other people as well like bonnie tyler yeah but the, the connection that he had with uh, meatloaf was one of a kind and of course you know when something is as perfect as like that there's always going to be a few problems and and i guess the ego um on both sides started uh, creating a bit of issues uh where they started suing each other over different things uh different principles uh, over the music and the publishing and and the name but um overall you know, when you push that aside, you could really see that it was a very healthy working relationship and very artistic as well. Steinman, I, I always looked at this and, you know, we, we talked about the Phil Spector who passed away just a little while ago and, and the influence he had and the, and the sound, the wall, the, you know, the wall of sound that he had. And you could tell a Phil Spector record. Jim Steinman was that guy back in, in his era, too, wasn't he? I mean, there was this, a, a sound that this guy was responsible for and, and meet both Bonnie uh, Tyler and so many other folks like that. But it's, it, he really had his trademark, didn't he? Jim Steinman definitely knew what he 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 knew exactly what he wanted because he heard this all in his head um and he knew how he wanted the sound to, or how he wanted the album to sound um sonically uh, the vocals and everything and he teamed up with todd rundgren which was definitely the the perfect person to bring on board for bad out of hell and that really kind of 
set the, the, the foundation for further uh, working relationships. But uh, Steinman was a visionary. Like he, lyrically, I, I, I mean, he's one of the best. When you think about all the lyrical uh, pros like Lennon and McCartney, Keith Richards and Jagger, and the list goes on and on, uh, there aren't any, be- any many better than uh, Jim Steinman. He he just really like, as you could almost smell the night when you heard him um, write, or you know when you're listening to his music, uh, everything was just so real. The the influence this guy had in, in the industry uh, was just incredible, and we we talked, you know, in our report there from Jason Nafis, and they talked about uh, the fact that he had roles in some movies. Everybody's going to remember the Rocky Horror Picture Show, of course, uh, and and a couple of other things in Fight Club. One of the, the tributes that came in on on Twitter the other day, uh, last night, as a matter of fact, uh, was for Andrew Lloyd Webber. They were friends, and they had a relationship, and I know Andrew Lloyd Webber had a great deal of respect for him. You remember the story. There was a very strong indication, and I guess there were actual negotiations went on, about Meatloaf to, to do Phantom of the Opera on, on the London stage. I mean, he had that much respect for his vocal uh, technique and, and for his, his ability on stage. Well, Meatloaf was huge in um, in Britain, and when you look at the whole scope of the sales, uh, it was the UK that really um, supported Meatloaf on not only just Bad Out of Hell, but his other uh, albums as well. Dead Ringer, I think that was probably another big seller in, in, in Europe or in, in England. Uh, but overall, um, people like Andrew Lloyd Webber recognized uh, Meatloaf's talent and his ability to just you know, not just only sing, but just really give you a performance. And when you think about all those early videos, when Bat of the Hell came out, you saw Paradise by the Dashboard Lights. You saw this larger-than-life figure uh, dressed up in a tuxedo and having a drink and just, you know, there's something about him. And I think um, Andrew Lloyd Webber is certainly no um, stranger to talent. And, 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 And that would have been a great combination, actually. Because there were stories about that. I mean, there was one, remember, around the same time that Paul Stanley from Kiss was going to do Phantom 2. And it's, it's... It's, it's all there because as the, as Phantom kept going and going and going and going, you know, you know, let's face it, oh, Phantoms would come and go, and they're always looking for some high profile individual. But when the the story about Meatloaf doing Phantom, I thought I thought to myself, I said, yeah, that could work. I can see that. I mean, he had that ability, didn't he? He had a he had a stage presence, uh, well, on video, but he certainly would have had one if he were doing a show like that. For sure, and I think that's the thing about him is that he was just a natural. He, um, you know, the the, the old stories of when. He was playing football and then from football when he was a kid uh, went into the drama club and then the rest is history. And I think, you know, he was just so um, just so confident in his abilities and good for him because like he he was definitely a little bit unusual in comparison to the other sort of stoic figures that you think about when you think of theater and um, Hollywood. But uh, that, that's one thing that I really respected about Meatloaf was just the fact that, um, you know, he, he was just so confident in himself that. Uh, anybody else that uh, saw him perform. It was contagious. Uh, I had the chance to actually meet him years ago. Um, and it, by chance, it was happenstance more than anything else. Uh, back in the days when we used to go to the radio station and actually do the show, it seems like 100 years ago now, but uh, my, my dear friend Gord James was doing an afternoon show on one of the music stations on RFM, and he, he had me open studio. Gord yeah, he's a good friend of you know, Gord's uh, uh, just emailed him a little while ago. Gordon worked in Toronto radio for years and years in Montreal and of course in Hamilton. Great uh, broadcasting legend. Uh, but he had him in studio and I thought, and so he introduced me to him obviously over by the coffee machine where everybody meets everybody. But what you saw on, on, on the screen and what you heard, that was Meatloaf. I mean, he was, he was high energy, very friendly guy 
And boy, what a storyteller. This guy was a raconteur. I mean, as you said, his 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 life story is amazing. And he, he could tell a story in such an amazing way with all that energy and passion that you would have expected. Uh, it was it was just well, I'm always amazed when I see somebody like that and said, yeah, that's him. He's not putting on an act. This 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 guy is high energy and passionate about everything he says and everything he does. I, I, I totally agreed. I was thinking about when, you know, I woke up this morning and I just started going through my news feed and read that Meatloaf passed away. The first thing I thought about was my introduction to Meatloaf's music. And I was maybe 13 or 14 and uh, a couple of older guys uh, that lived close to where my mom and dad had their home. Um, we'd always go over there, a bunch of us, just to learn new about new music and things that were coming out. And these guys were so, sort of groundbreakers that always um, buying records of the uh, new stuff that was uh, uh, available. And I remember the first time I saw the Meatloaf album, I was just so taken away, even before I heard a note. Uh, just because of the album cover, uh, it, it was yeah. like something I had never seen before, and no word of a lie, Bill. I remember, I remember listening to it afterwards and thinking, "Wow, I think I'm growing up," because it was so much different than anything else that I was listening to at the time. Kiss and Alice Cooper, and anything else that a kid would listen to. And then you listen to Meatloaf, and the lyrics are different, the um, the stories are, are different. It just seems like you know you're just all of a sudden growing up into becoming a teenager and you're starting to get it, you know, the paradise by the dashboard lights and all of it is relevant. And that for me was just a a really, really um, groundbreaking moment uh, of learning about meatloaf and that album. Well, folks like you that are in tune with musical history can understand. And I'm sure that some of the listeners of of music today wouldn't get this, but albums were an art form. Album covers were an art form uh, for the longest time. We don't see much of it anymore, but we think of some of the classics and uh, some very innovative ideas on album covers. But that one just jumped out at you, didn't it, when Bad Out of Hell came out? It did. It was just absolutely perfect. And it was one of those album covers that, you know, you just didn't do anything else but look at the album cover while you're listening to their music. It was just uh, incredible. It was one of a kind. And I think it really raised the bar for a lot of uh, album artwork because in the 70s, there was a lot of iconic album covers, but this one was just outstanding. Uh, and very innovative too. I, and I still, still recall. I mean, listening to the radio, my my dad, who's obviously a little older and not into meatloaf music, but uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. And as soon as the the Phil Rizzuto, longtime Yankee broadcaster, uh, they used Phil Rizzuto in, in that cl- about you know going to first base, second base, and everything. And they caught his attention. He said, "This is kind of neat, kind of innovative." I mean, they 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 didn't. They were never afraid to take chances, were they? And to and to, and to think outside the box. By God, I think he's gonna make it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Stop right there. Stop right <laughs> which, there. I know it's perfect. Oh, which we lot. have to do. Which we have to do right now. Lou, uh, thanks so much for the time and for uh, some great recollections of a great talent. Thanks again. We'll uh, stay in touch. You bet. Thanks for having me on your show, Bill. Okay, music expert Lou Malinero uh, talking about the great meatloaf who passed away uh, yesterday. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.